0: Dr Richard Nuns has dedicated the best part of the last three decades to the revitalisation of taongapuoro or traditional Māori instruments. Flutes made of wood or bone, such as the nguru or the Koowo, or trumpet instruments such as the putorino or the pukaya, a part of the large collection of Māori instruments that Dr Nuns plays. He is the leading expert in Aotearoa on traditional Māori music. And there are not many Māori artists whom have not worked with Dr Nunn's, either on albums, in the theatre or music concerts. Dr Paul Wolfram first encountered Dr Richard Nunn's as a Victoria University student who at the time was studying ethnomusicology. Years later, Dr Paul is a lecturer of the film programme at Victoria University. Last year we talked about Ngārio o Te whenua. Voices of the Land, a documentary about Dr. Richard Nunn's and the connection of Taongapūro to the natural landscape. Now fast forward one year and Ngareo o Te Whenua debuted last night at Soundings Theatre Te Papa. Dr. Paul shared his experience of filming the documentary that took him and his crew across the width and breadth of Te Waipaunamu.
1: Oh, well, I was born in Rotorua, and uh, and lived there for a few years before moving to Fokatane and eventually to Tokoroa, where I did most of my growing up. And um, and and that Tokoroa was a place that really you know kind of founded me and um, being one of the few Pakeha kids in the class and lots of Pacific Islanders, lots of Cook Island Samoan and Maori kids. And and I really became fascinated at that early age about uh, life in the islands and and Maori life. You know, um, having the opportunity to go to Marae at an early age was was. A defining moment for me.
0: What did you learn at of marae?
1: Well, just how different Maori people are from you know, Pākehās living in New Zealand uh, a lot of people don't have the opportunity to to explore that world when they're, when they're kids and um, and I felt really privileged to be, have the ability to uh, move amongst people that were regularly working in, and, uh, and with their family on marae so um, we were always welcome, and and my sister and I used to visit these places all the time. It was a really warm community, and so the taste of that sort of that open community at an early age was really really important to me.
0: So you've always um, been associated with Māori, with with both communities, with Pacific communities, with Māori communities. Yeah.
1: Yeah, from from uh, those early days in Rotorua and Tokoroa, Um and, and I guess that's what eventually sent me off to the islands to live there for a couple of years because I'd, I wanted to be more than a tourist in these places. I wanted to understand how people lived and, and get my head around the cultural aspects of why people lived in communities in these ways.
0: You're an ethnomusicologist, which is the anthropology of music. That's right. So that's your background, essentially. Yeah.
1: And that's what, um, that's what I was doing in Papua New Guinea for, for two, yeah. three years, was, was uh, learning the music and dance of the people I was living with there in the rainforest.
0: And then somehow, um, what you took away from that experience um, was not only the richness of the sound, but it, it, it gave you that, I suppose, spark to, to move into more capturing the image film.
1: That's right. It became obvious to me quite early on that uh, music and dance, it's a very Western thing to separate them into music and dance. For, for most Maori and Pacific cultures, it's mm. it's not separated. It's thought of as one thing. You know, you sing as you perform. It's just natural. Um, so I, I decided that a video camera was a great way to capture it. and just capturing audio seemed to be missing half the point literally.
0: ya <laughs> Tell us about your first encounter with uh, Dr. Richard Nuns.
1: Well, I was an undergraduate student um, studying ethnomusicology under Alan Thomas, who eventually um, was uh, Richard's mentor and um, and PhD supervisor as well. And um, and I first came across Richard Nuns, and I he's one of the people that inspired me to go to Papua New Guinea because his model of long term engagement with the community going and working with people, but not just coming away to write up or to make you know to make Get what you need, then that's, go. That's right, which is the model of many Western academics. His model seemed like a much better way of doing things and uh, inspired me to, to work in Papua New Guinea, and, and I keep on returning to Papua New Guinea. In fact, I'm going back in December to work there again. Um, so, yeah, well, I came across Richard when I, as an undergraduate, and I thought, well, if he can work like this, so can I. Um, and he was really inspirational because... He'd not only been doing this for for a few years; he'd been doing this for 30 years, returning mm. to the Maori communities he worked with, um, demonstrating the knowledge that he'd learned, and a real respect for Maori communities and them and their knowledge.
0: I mean, it's almost like um, Dr. Richard Nuns reminded me of some of the the Crowell or the Komato back home in that they are so frail, but yet they're at every single hui. You see them all the time, and so with Dr. Richard Nuns he's very gracious with his time, isn't he?
1: Oh, he, he is. He is. His mantra, as he says, is he says yes to everything. Now that's been somewhat um, curtailed by his his dis- disability, his Parkinson's. Yeah. What he calls his permanent Woody. Permanent Woody. Yeah, that's right. Um, but um, but yeah, he says yes to everything, and he feels obligated. Um, as you'd understand, he's been all this knowledge and these stories that he's been learned over the years um, have been generously kind of shared with him, and he feels that mm. his it's his job to to share these back to the communities that he got them from and to other people, you know, um, and that's a that's a great way of working. And I think it's. It's one of the key things behind Maori communities. Is, is I've encountered them and understood them as, as um, this this idea of sharing and the idea of community and how important that is sharing mm. knowledge. So. Was
0: well, so it you, Paul? I remember when I spoke to you a year ago. You you mentioned that Dr. Richard Nunn's paid a visit, I think, to the school and he walked outside. and Did he see a leaf or a piece of grass or a blade of grass, or and he picked it up and, and just that's right.
1: It. I remember. Um, Richard told us to follow him with a camera one day and I, I followed him around the, just the gardens outside the music school which were all native plants and he just, one after the other, after the other like, we must have gone through 20 plants everyone he said this is so-and-so he gave the Maori name, gave the scientific name and then uh, we'd pick it up and play it. You, know, you know, this is a mountain daisy. When you hollow this out, you can use it as a mouth resonator, and you'd tap on it. And just the, the depth of knowledge there is just extraordinary. And, in fact, that was one of the uh, frustrating things when um, making the film with him is that he and Horomono would be walking down a path in the in the bush. We'd be trying to get to a location at a certain time to record something, and uh, inevitably Richard would stop and say, hey, boy, what's that called? And, and Horomono would have a go, and he'd say, oh, try harder. <laughs> and uh, and he'd would always been you know but he'd be learning teaching Haurora about the plants and of course Hauramana knows a huge amount now as well and then they'd stop and they'd tutu with stuff and they and they'd make sounds out of leaves in, in fact there's one section in the film that that kind of captures that playfulness they stop and they bang on trees and make them resonate and then they <laughs> um, you know and then they go up to a rock and they start playing it like kowowoe and. And then they pull on leaves, and it sounds like they're calling seagulls, but uh, <laughs> apparently it's a wicker call. It's, it's neat how playful they are, and that's one of the other things I really appreciate about, about Richard, is that while he's very careful and respectful of the knowledge, um, it doesn't always need to be treated with so much reverence. You know, you can joke, you can have fun with this. And, mm. and, and, um, Don't and, be scared of him, yeah, so
0: that's to speak. Right. Yeah. and
1: often that's uh, pakia feel intimidated by the modern world because uh, they don't know where to begin and and, and sometimes a humor and that respectful playfulness um can really help to open up
0: 15 locations.
1: Yeah, or more. I can't recall, really. <laughs> it's um, it pretty intense.
0: From Takaka. Now, was Takaka going towards Golden Bay? Yeah, that's here? right.
1: And we worked out around there um, for a week, and we went over to the top of the west coast, a place called Karamia, which is just stunning. Um, top of the west coast, wild seas coming in, and just the sounds in these places are incredible. And we walked right down to a place called Birdlands Flat, where... Um, just south of Christchurch, and we went down to the Catlins and finished these, uh, visited all sorts of uh, amazing locations in the Catlins, and then finally over to Fiordland, where we um, went up to, um, I think it's called Doubtful Sound, at one of the peaks there, and, and filmed up there. So we saw a huge amount of the landscape of the, of the South Island, and, um, and I got a new appreciation for just how beautiful New Zealand is.
0: Yeah. Um, now, the trailer opens with um, a scene shot in a, inside a cave, is that the Narua? Is that where you went to the Narua caves? Yeah, um, that's right. Paul, tell us about because it's almost like I'm mean, um sort of holding um, Richard Nun's um, arm to you know make sure. I mean, I was kind of scared when I first saw it. I mean, how was it difficult to shoot? Was it difficult to shoot in there?
1: Yeah, well, uh, I guess it speaks to Richard's um, own determination, but um, <laughs> I he wanted to he wanted to work in this cave. He said the sounds in here are important and. Um you know, it's 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 an interesting place. So he really wanted to work in there. And I went in and I saw the 22 steps down mm. and I thought, oh, man, I'm going to be um, known as the man that killed Richard <laughs> Nunn's. But he insisted on going on down there. And, you know, and when he wants to do something, even with his, his Parkinson's, his condition, when he puts his mind to something, he's still well and truly capable. <laughs> so he... Um, he got himself in there, and, and of course with Hormona's help, and uh, and and so the film opens inside the cave, and it's it feels closed in, and it feels very dark, but um, kind of establishes uh, an important um, aspect of for Tonga portal players, which is the from the darkness, you know, and light came the music. Yes, yes, and so. And so that's what I was trying to do there. We kind of established the characters in there. And, and, and the relationship between uh, Richard and, and Horomono is really important. You get a feel for the fact that you know Horomono is, uh, looks after him and, and guides him around. And the, the relationship is really mm-hmm. close. And then we burst out over the Takaka Hills, and it's just gorgeous. All the colour floods in. Um, the film as a whole is a real experience, and that's what I wanted it to yeah. be. It's, you <clears throat> You enter into the experience of what it's like to... You know another way of understanding the relationship between between people and landscape, and I think this will be most pertinent for Pakia who who just haven't encountered this way of thinking before many maori I believe will already be familiar with many of these ideas. but I think it's the Pakia audience that will um, be most uh, intrigued by this new way of thinking
0: amazing Nā reo o te whenua voices of the land are there any um stand out landscapes that you also go to?
1: Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, Fiordland is just incredible. But um, as I've mentioned, the, um, the Catlands are just yeah. amazing. Yeah. And we went to a place called Jack's Blowhole there, which is um, an old smuggler's port. There was some a Maori guy who used to bring in whiskey. He was, a, he was an interesting character by the sounds of it, and he used this as a place to smuggle stuff, and it's become known as Jack's Blowhole. <laughs> okay. but, uh, and, and just the sights and sounds there. But it's more than just, uh, you, know, you know, it is a musical exploration of the landscape, but it's also, it also tells the story of the revival, the revival of the Tonga Portal. It also tells the special relationship that Richard had with um, Hirini, Melbourne, um, who passed away in 2001, mm-hmm. now, quite a while ago. But his legacy has been incredible for Tonga Portal players. And um, and so it tells the story of the revival, tells the story of his relationship with um, Hirani and uh, Brian Flintoff, who's become you know, a master carver of Tonga Portal. But it also kind of seeks to make us you know, reflect on who we are in the landscape and how we, how we consider the landscape.
0: Was it sad wrapping up the film?
1: Oh, yes, in, in many ways. I think Richard would have liked to continue to do the North Island now. You know? I was going to um,
0: say, why such the concentration in the South Island? Is because Richard lives there?
1: No, partly because Richard lives there and he's really familiar with a lot of the landscape. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, most of the places that we visited were sites where Iwi and Hapu had told him, you know, these are, these are important places to us and they, yeah. and they have sounds and meaning for us. So. He's kind of gathered a, a stockpile of mm. all of these interesting places through his 30, 40 years of working with Māori communities, and he wanted to explore this idea on film with us. Um, but, yeah, we certainly could have gone on for another <laughs> year. It's, um, my budget, my time <laughs> is what ultimately restricted us.
0: I mean, talk about budget. I mean, obviously, uh, well, maybe not obvious to, to, to many, but, I mean, last year there was the, the Pledge Me page. Did Have you done this on The Smell of an Oily Rag? Um, Paul?
1: Well I mean I've been very lucky in many ways Mm -hmm. to be supported by the University. Uh, Victoria University supported me with equipment and that's taken a huge you know kind of budget line out. I've got access to some pretty amazing kit at the University and I use that to shoot this film. Um, We've had support from um, the Film Commission and from um, Victoria University have given me some research grants and in these ways I've been able to pay people. And then finally um, in the last stage, we got a grant from the Film Commission to do finishing because I think they could see how important this film was going to be for New Zealand and Aotearoa as a as a, a film that speaks about who we are and how we live in our landscape. So in the end, they gave us some finishing funds and we were able to work out at Park Road Post Production where um, where we just had you know amazing people spend an incredible amount of time and energy polishing the film, and the sound design by a chap called Tim Preble is just gorgeous.
0: Mm, I see that, yeah. So have you seen the final
1: cut oh yes and yes. has
0: dr richard seen no he the hasn't
1: seen the final cut um he saw a cut way back in february when he expressed <laughs> relief i think was, was his main emotion <laughs> um but he was really pleased i think that that it's kind of a, it's a bit of an abstract idea you know how do you communicate the relationship between landscape and, and instruments and people it's but i've been very pleased i had my own questions through the production process you know how am i going to tell the story of the revival uh, tell how this Pākehā fits into this Māori world, how are we going to you know, express this this intimate relationship between Tonga, Porto and landscape? It's going to be mm. difficult, but in fact I'm really pleased with the way it's come together. And I've got to credit Annie Collins, the editor, with um, just a superb skill. I mean, she's really at the top of her game now. Um, and so it's all come together. It's just so beautifully. And the final finishing of it has just brought it to life on screen. It's just uh, fantastic.
0: You know, often um, Paul, when I collect, um, when I record in the field, the painful thing is what to leave out. What was did that go? Did you go through that particular process in the file? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But
1: again, Annie Collins, she's pretty brutal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she can, uh, did you have
0: to justify anything?
1: Uh, everything. <laughs> uh, and and she was she was very good at it. She straight straight to the, the important shots and why it's important and we were able to discuss and talk through everything and, and mm-hmm. we ended up um, with many, many hours of footage and unfortunately we, we could only tell a few stories. There's many other stories that we could have told um, with the footage we had, but we had to focus on what we thought was important for the film.
0: Doctor Paul um Wolfram, lecturer at the film programme Victoria University here in Wellington, Nadia WTFenwa, please go and see it, whānau and Paul, thank you so much, Kia ora.
1: Kia ora.